Hello there, dear friends. It's Chappie, your British butler. It's Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, episode number 96. And it's almost poetic symmetry that it's episode 96. Because as I speak to you, the sky has bruised. It's dusk here in Colorado. And tomorrow, and probably for some of you when you listen to this, it'll be the day of uh, Euro 2020, England versus Scotland. Now, this being episode 96 takes me back to the summer of 1996, where everything was easier. I didn't wear shirts with collars. I preferred the sort of Nero look, almost Bond villain-like. Um, I wore a lot of turtlenecks. I wore um, a lot of uh, cardigan gilets without the arms and sleeves. I had a big mop of curly hair. Uh, almost like some sort of Don King type of afro going on. Um, and I like to double, triple, quadruple gin and tonic now and again. Now, some things have uh, moved on. Some things uh, uh, haven't changed one little iota. Uh, but today, we're going to celebrate uh, the, the one of the biggest rivalries. It's the uh, Scots versus the English at Wembley today. Now, the last huge game was around sort of 25 years ago. It was uh, Paul Gascoigne's, one of his more seminal moments, a little bit like Italia 90, when he started crying. But this was when he flicked the ball over the head and went on to score a, a wondrous goal. It was pure magic. And, um, and we hope that the game... Uh, today will be of a similar quality uh, and really delight and excite the masses and something we're going to be talking about maybe in 25 years time I mean it's huge I mean it brings back William Wallace makes you think of Rabbi Burns uh, it, it makes you think of Robert the Bruce makes you think of Henry VIII I mean there's been uh, some tremendous battles over the over the years with swords and spears and cannons this is two teams, 11 aside, playing the beautiful game for 90 minutes. And it could end up as a tie. It could end up as a draw. But those gladiators will be going out to Wembley tomorrow. And for much excitement, they'll have the hopes of each nation on their shoulders. So in the show, we'll be celebrating everything Scottish and English. Uh, we're going to be having a battle of two delicacies on the Scots and the English side. They'll be, they'll be fighting it out. It'll be a fight to the death. It'll be fight to a sort of mushy uh, type of dilapidated death that uh, neither of these foods want. They much be preferred to be gobbled up. But it, uh, it'll be... The, uh, the ultimate fight of all fights. Almost like a food cage match. Uh, we're also going to have a, a little competition where the English are taking on the Scots in another type of game. And this is one that I would, I would think would favour the Scots. But we will have to see who comes out on top. Or bottom, I guess.
So today's show is going to be packed to the absolute, it's going to be like a packed stadium basically. No social distancing on this show today. We're going to pack everything in and uh, it'll be squeezed, it'll, it'll be like my, my sort of belt after a very delicious French meal. Where you, you know, you have to probably screwdrive another hole in that belt. I mean, that's why you sometimes have to slip the uh, slip the corkscrew out of the waiter's pocket, just to uh, you know, just to, just getting another, you know, just to get another hole in the leather, just so you can uh, ease things a little bit, or even just loosen the belt. But my fear is you stand up for the table after paying the bill and you trousers fall down i mean that that's highly probable and possible in my case i think so we're, we're we're tackling football today we're tackling the big game uh on the musical emporium butler jig edition on spotify there'll be some tunes um really signifying uh the rivalry the patriotism and also harking back to euro 96 we're gonna throw a few tunes in and then a few Maybe uh, some would say pretty awful football tunes as well. So some of the other things that we may or may not be talking about today or um, tomorrow's show Saturday is I do like the Scarlet Pimpernel of foods. I will explain or not. Uh, Also, um, my mother has decreed that she's not cooking Sunday lunches anymore. The refreshing wet boat shoe. Uh, nature's weapons, smoke and cotton fluff. Uh, my love of European butter goes beyond me spreading it completely on toast. Uh, you know, there's other things to do with butter. Now, get your minds out of the gutter, people. Come on. Get your minds out of the gutter. Uh, but there's other things that butter is very helpful with. Uh, also, my father found an ancient stone. Or was it so ancient is the question. Uh, and as I said, we're really, we're really moving towards uh, the game tomorrow with a few things. You know, as I said, two two national foods on the Scots and the English side battling against each other. We have a competition that I think the Scots have a little bit more of an advantage. I have to say, um, and also, um, you know, we're going to have a historical tender where. Uh, Maybe we'll have William Wallace. Maybe we'll have Admiral Lord Nelson and some facts uh, on them. It's two great English and Scottish heroes on historical Tinder who will be swiped left, who will be swiped right on in that. Uh, in the middle. And also the nation's favorite, fish and chips. You know, the history and likely origins of fish and chips. Um, you know, both sides love, uh, love, do love the fish and chip. Um, history of England and Scotland games as well. Uh, there's a lot. There's been a lot of. Uh, there's been a lot of argy bargy over the years, so to speak, um, on and off the pitch, really. Uh, what's the difference between English, Irish, and Scottish breakfast teas? I mean, you've really got so much here. Do you, can you handle it? Do you think you'll be able to really tune your brain in, engage your ears? And your mind, it is theatre of the mind here and keep calm and cauliflower cheese, after all. Um, and then tomorrow's show will be more the normal type of nonsense. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure lots of you will love the beautiful game and enjoy the swords being crossed tomorrow on the pitch. 
So there's something that can unite uh, both teams and both nations, Scotland and England. The nation's favourite, both nations' favourite, the history and unlikely origins of fish and chips. Voted our favourite double act. I mean, you could say the Scotland and England football match is the classic double act of all. Uh, Who's going to be the funny man? Who's going to be a straight man on uh, this auspicious occasion? So, but the fish and chips, this classic British staple, hasn't always enjoyed a perfect pairing status. Fish and chips is considered Britain's national dish. But it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that the double act emerged. Until then, the fried fish and cooked potatoes trades had existed separately. It's thought that chip fried potatoes originated in Belgium, while the uh, pescado frito fried fish was a Spanish import. It was sold by street vendors from huge trays slung around their necks. Joseph Malin from London and John Lees from Mossley near Manchester both claimed to have been the first to have inspired the idea of serving fish and chips together. In the following decade, fish and chip stores spread like wildfire. The dish was hot, cheap and nutritious, uh, much like myself, uh, being a working class staple and was also especially popular with factory workers. The first sit-down fish and chips restaurant was opened by Sam Isaacs in 1896 in Whitechapel, London, serving fish and chips, bread and butter and tea, all for nine shillings. Workers love the idea of uh, emulating posh people by eating affordable fish and chips with all the trappings of fine dining. White cloths, cutlery, china plates. Isaac's slogan was, this is the place. Spelt place, fish place. However, the rich often looked down on fish and chips as unhealthy and a waste of working class families' limited resources. In the early 20th century, the shops became known as uh, salons and... The growth of twirling in the North Sea provided bountiful supplies of white fish. Seaside resorts capitalised on the booming demand for fish and chips, while the growing rail network also meant fish and chips could be imported uh, from ports such as Grimsby to the industrial heartlands. It meant that the old adage, never eat fish and chips if you can't see the sea, was obsolete. The number of fish and chip shops peaked at 35,000 in 1927. In 1928, Britain's most famous chip shop, owner Harry Ramsden started frying in Geisley in West Yorkshire. During the Second World War, Winston Churchill recognised the crucial role of fish and chips, referring to them as good companions. Fish and chips were two of the few feuds not subject to rationing because the government feared the dish was so embedded in the nation's culture that any uh, limit would cause and damage morale. British soldiers identified one another during D-Day landings by calling the word fish the response to chips, signifying an ally. ally. The origins of mushy peas as a perfect accompaniment, as we'll see later, probably dates back to 1970. Um, and uh, there was about 10,500 fish and chip shores in the UK compared to about 1,200 McDonald's restaurants uh, in the UK. There's hot competition between fish and chips and Indian food for the accolade. There's about 9,000 Indian food restaurants in the UK. Um, Pinching a partner's chips is the biggest cause of rows between couples and restaurants. The EU rules mean the terms fish and chips is gradually disappearing from menus. These days, restaurants are meant to specify the precise type of fish rather than using a more vague description. Wrapping fish and chips in newspapers fell foul of health and safety warnings in the 1980s. Also, you could get the imprint of boobs from page three on your fish, which 
you know, put some people off, I guess. Actress uh, Kate Winslet and footballers Wayne Rooney and John Terry also fished chips at weddings. Sir Paul McCartney used to love tucking into the national dish before he became a vegetarian. And Michael Jackson actually liked mushy peas. Uh, the Chinese have theirs uh, sprinkled with sugar, while New York has four British-style fish and chip shops. And despite the dwindling stocks of cod, it's still the most popular fish served with chips, more than 60%, with haddock the next at 25%. And then you get the scraps, the best bit, the little bits of batter that become detached during frying. I mean, that's like uh, all, almost like the golden fleece. That's how wonderful it is. Um... In one survey, fish and chips beat frying bacon as the nation's favourite smell. Uh, the largest portion of fish and chips was served by Scoresby's Fisheries in Doncaster. The massive battered cod uh, was at £33 pounds and was accompanied by £64 pounds of chips. Um, and then, you know, we have some corny names of fish and chips. A codfather, a salt and battery, the frying Scotsman, and oh my cod being some of the most cringeworthy. Uh, aficionados say batter should protect the fish during frying so it's actually steamed the fish should be flaky rather than soggy which signifies the use of frozen rather than fresh fish and a floury potato is best the best varieties of potatoes for chips are the king edwards uh marius piper and sante being the best the most floury potatoes so there we go scots and the english both united both in agreement for one part of the day only fish and chips they love it. So one of the things that the two countries can definitely do, Scotland and England, they can pull each other's legs. They can make fun of each other unrepentantly, without a doubt. Uh, Scotland, a land of immeasurable beauty, inspiring history and immense wit. Uh, one of the greatest exports of both England and Scotland is a unique sense of humour. But we're going to have some of the... We're going to dabble in some of the funniest jokes and uh, nonsense in Scotland today, I think. Um, Glasgow is a very negative place. If Kanye was born in Glasgow, he would have been called... No, you Calais! A man walks into a Glasgow pub and asks for a pint of lager with a dash of lime... We don't do cocktails, laddie. And then what did the Scottish guy do with the trumpet buried in the garden? He rooted it out. And what is the difference between a Scottish sheep farm and a Rolling Stone song? One says, hey, you get off my cloud. And the other says, hey, McClough, get off me. So we're going to have our great food off very shortly. And we're going to introduce the two contestants, though. Uh, on the English side, on the red side, or probably more Kermit Green in this case, are the mushy peas. Mushy peas uh, on the English side here. Mushy peas are dried marifat peas, first over-soaked in water with sodium bicarbonate baking soda, then rinsed in fresh water, after which the peas are gathered in a saucepan covered with water and brought to a boil, then simmered until the peas are softened and mushy or mushy, mushy or mushy. The mush is seasoned with salt and pepper. Throughout the British Isles, Northern England and Midlands in particular, they're traditionally accompanied with fish and chips since probably the early 70s. That's when they came in into, uh, into their hole. And there is a popular, popular snack called pies and peas. It's akin to the uh, South Australian pie floater. 
but with mushy peas instead of a thick pea soup accompanying the meat pie. I think we're going to have to, on the future podcasts, examine the uh, South Aussie pie floater. They're sometimes uh, also packed into a ball, dipped in batter, deep fried and served as the pea fritter. Now, I think I might prefer the pea fritter than the, uh, than the mushy peas. It almost looks like guacamole. For you, you Americans out there, it's, it's almost like a guacamole. Um, uh, but maybe a little bit more rustic. In Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire and parts of Lincolnshire, mushy peas are often served as a snack on their own. Nottinghamshire, they're traditionally accompanied with mint sauce. Now, that sounds quite pleasant. Uh, Derbyshire, they're served uh, with chips caused a, a pea mix. Mushy peas are popular in Scotland as well, uh, but originated in England. Uh, but they're a wetter version. Well, with the weather up there, it's not surprising. And a little bit more uh, vinegar, a little bit more bitter, like the Scots maybe tomorrow. Um, a variant uh, in Bury. Greater Manchester is parched peas, carlin peas, uh, also maple peas or black peas. Soak them, boil slowly for a long time. Um, and, you know, you have a little dash of vinegar, as you all, you know, as you would with the fish and chips as well. Uh, mushy peas are occasionally called uh, Yorkshire caviar. <laughs> so there we go. That's the mushy peas. That, the mushy peas, I guess they should be in the green corner, but the traditional uh, red of the England shirts. They'll be in the red corner. And uh, who are the Scottish going to have in the blue corner? And in the blue corner, laddie, we have the deep fried Mars bar. Anyway, so the battered chocolate bar may be a media cliche and a tourist attraction, but also generally of the people. The culinary traditions of Scotland have been uh, always in the news. The revelation that the Mars bar, the eponymous maker of the chocolate bar, has been in correspondence with an Aberdeenshire fish and chip shop. Lawyers for the confectionery giant sent a letter to the owners of the Cowanfish Bar in Stonehaven, asked them to make it clear that its speciality, the deep-fried Mars bar, was not authorised or endorsed by the company. Apparently, Mars felt uh, obliged to act, learning that the Cowan's owners were considering an application to Europe for the deep-fried Mars bars to be given protected origin status, which highlights traditional regional foods with authenticity can be guaranteed. Uh, so far so reminiscent of a pitch for the whimsical David and Goliath type screenplay the the owners of Karen did not uh, pursue the application and it has been doubtful at best whether the humble deep fried Mars bar might be deemed worthy of special status normally reserved for the thoroughbred products like champagne pedigree foodstuffs like the Melton Mowbray pork pie Uh, either way uh, this episode that the deep fried Mars bar is unworthy of the place of the Scottish culinary canon. Not necessarily. Yes, the fact that this gooey bastard child of fat and sugar has become a shorthand for the excesses of the Scottish diet can be immensely irritating. It's tiresome to listen to the lazy cliches that suggest that the Scots live and die in the shadow of a pie shop sipping buckfast tonic wine as if it were their mother's milk and eating deep fried Mars bars. But most sane and responsible uh, people know that Scotland is as famous for its fine seafood, meat and artisan cheeses as for its pie rolls. Um, Presuming you're not a bunker-dwelling mustachioed survivalist and the only person alive who had never seen a bilious TV chef hand uh, dive scallops from a rowing boat. I think that uh, we should not be ashamed. The Scots should not be ashamed of the deep-fried Mars bar. There is no need to deny its traditional status 
just because it's less than health healthy and was born in a chip shop within the past couple of decades traditions have to start somewhere and today we have the mighty mushy peas versus the gooey sticky mars bar we are reenacting the great match on the pitch on the soccer pitch today but in the ring we're reenacting mushy peas against deep fried mars bars two staples of the english and scottish diets battling out over probably nine rounds and it's going to be let's get ready to rumble So the mushy green, mushy peas of England. We've got those, that mighty fella in the blue corner. The deep fried Mars bar. And representing the red corner, we have the Kermit green mushy peas. And they're sparring, they're like sidestepping around each other. The, uh, the Mars bar looks uh, absolutely uh, steaming hot, gooey chocolate dripping off it a real fiery mess the mushy peas green a little glutinous a little a little dare i say uh, very mushy and um oozing oozing slightly the sliminess of the peas right makes this guy a really slippery customer as they start rocking back and forth fists up and uh really sparring with each other now uh, the uh, the steaming hot Mars bar landing a few punches here and there onto the mushy peas and uh, bits of the peas are dropping off here all around uh, but as I said the mushy peas slipping and sliding all over the place you feel one blow from the mushy pea at, uh, at the Mars bar could let the whole of the caramel insides fall out here and uh, the peas like the peas are really slipping and sliding, sparring from side to side, and uh, the the Mars bar is rampant here, moving rampantly uh, against uh, against the peas, uh, getting a couple of blows in. Uh, as I said, removing parts of the peas, but the peas uh, on the English side are very stealthy, very weaselly, very very slippery. And uh, sliding all over the place. And lands a blow on the Mars bar. And oh, there's oozing caramel going everywhere. Chocolate and caramel everywhere. And I think the, uh, I think the referee's going to have to put a stop to this bout. Uh, there's too much punishment going on now with the Mars bar. It's going to be a real messy type of moosey affair at the end of this. And the P is being held aloft as the victor of the Mars bar versus mushy P bout. Our next battle decide the new world order, Scotland or England, at top of the tree. Uh, here's a little bit of a clue. So there'll be a lot of people watching who will wonder that does a true Scotsman wear under his kilt? And I can tell you a true Scotsman would never tell you what he wears under his kilt. He would show you at a drop of a hat. So our little competition we have the English taking on the Scots at their own game, a little bit of kilt lifting. And if Linda was in the crowd, uh, she would be uh, looking at the kilt. The English came out on top in the uh, whole uh, mushy pea competition versus the Mars bar. 
uh, the Mars bar is now just a hot mess all over the floor. So the uh, deep fried concoction, uh, once once you got off the crispy layer, there was uh, nothing left of the uh, the delicious delectation dessert. Anyway, the next competition, uh, we're trying to reenact, as I said, a little bit of competitive spirit between the English and the Scottish for the game, the big game uh, that kicks off at 7.30 UK time. Uh, I think it's around 2.30 my time. Um, and uh, anyway, we're having a kilt lifting competition. This was, uh, this was filmed earlier. This was, uh, this was uh, made earlier today. Uh, this is one where I prepared earlier, buddy. Okay. Um, and basically, uh, you know, you're going to have 11 aside. And the English really are entering the Scottish domain in kilt lifting. I mean, that's how confident the English are. They're, they're ready to go up to uh, Hampden Park and take on the Scottish at their old game. It's a little bit cooler up there, uh, but the English are very confident that their kilt lifting skills are much more prominent than the, uh, than the Scottish. I mean, you know, the English like to do a little bit of cross-dressing when it comes to pantomimes and everything else. Uh, so, you know, why not take uh, the Scots on at their own game with kilt lifting? Uh, so the, the the teams are purely made out of uh, Ruperts and Hughes. That's on the English side. There's 11 Ruperts, um, a mixture of Ruperts and Hughes making up the 11 for the English. And then on the Scottish, you got Hamish and Jock for the Scots. Uh, and as I said, it's playing playing at Hamden Park. You know, it's probably 10 degrees cooler than it would be at Wembley. Uh, so it's cooler uh, and, uh, you know, real shrinkage conditions for the kilt lifting competition. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the English will have to be wary. Years and years of, uh, of uh, kilt lifting. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very, very little under the kilt, are You know, and, and the English are used to maybe more thermal underwear and long johns and everything else. So they're going to have to get with nature and, uh, and probably wear, uh, you know, maybe very little under that. Maybe a little thong, banana hammock, who knows? Or they might just go in the nudie. You know, it could be that. So, anyway, uh, we have the uh, first uh, inaugural kilt lifting competition coming up next. So, here we are at Hampden Park. Everybody in traditional wear here. Scots are wearing more the Campbell Tartan. For generations, they've worn the Campbell Tartan. And, uh, and we've got the uh, Prince of Wales, strangely enough. They provided a Duchy of Cornwall uh, little tweed number that the English are wearing here. And as I said, we have a mixture of Hughes uh, and Rupert's on the English side and uh, Hamish and Jock on the Scottish side here. And uh, they're just doing a little bit of warming up here. You have to stretch your muscles before you lift up the kilt. So a few squats, you know. Don't get too close to the back there, lads. All right, there we go. So, uh, you know, a few squats, a few downward dogs. Uh, before they uh, before they start the whole session here, uh, so it's almost like a penalty shootout of kilt lifting, uh, and we've got Hugh uh, taking on uh, we've got Hugh taking on Jock in the first uh, first of our shootouts here, or kilt lifts as I like to call it. So uh, we've got uh, we'll, we'll, you know home advantage. We'll get the we'll let uh, we'll let Jock go first here. So it, it, all right, the, the kilt's coming up. All right. Oh, it's going up. Oh, it's, it's lovely. There's, there's, there's plenty of traction as the kilt goes up. Can he keep it up, though? Can he keep it up? Can he keep it up? 
Oh, no, 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 no. Well, there we go. He couldn't, uh, Jock couldn't keep it up. Uh, the wind caught it, and it blew it down again. So now we have uh, Hugh. I don't think he's ever taken part in kilt lifting before. So we have our first Hugh, and let's see how he does here. Oh, yes, he's got a lot of... It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty upright. No, no, no trouble there. No trouble keeping it up on Hugh's side. Uh, up, 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 up and up and away. That's it. There we go. There we have. Uh, so Hugh takes the first battle. So we have the English take a one nil lead, uh, and now we have um, we have Hamish uh, versus Rupert. So Hamish versus Rupert. So uh, we're going to get Hamish coming up to the hockey here, if that's what we want to call it. And uh, he looks very resplendent in his kilt. He's a little bit shorter than Jock's. And uh, here we go. We we have uh, we have uh, Hamish taking on uh, taking on Rupert. And uh, this is uh, there we go. Let's see what we can do here. Oh, fantastic effort by Hamish. That's going up pretty quickly. And can can, can he keep it up? Can he keep it up? Oh wow! It's like high as the clouds. He's got it well up there, and the kilt's lifted. And he's uh, revealing a, a little bit of a red Barbarossa, to say the least. So there we go. Uh, good effort there by uh, by uh, young uh, young Hamish there. And uh, now we have uh, now we have Rupert having a go. Let's have a look. Can he get it up? Oh no! Oh no! It's I think his kilt's fallen down. So uh, there we go. We have the Scots uh, so far. It's a 1-1 one, one, uh, situation here. It's a tie. It's a draw at the moment. And um, we'll, take, we'll take one more Hugh. And we'll take one more Jock. So let's have a look here. So, uh, let's see if Hugh can... Uh, let's see if Hugh can get it up again. All right, here we go. Oh, it's raised pretty high yet again. It's raised pretty high. Oh, the sun's come out. The sun is the sun is definitely coming out here. Oh, and he, I think he's fr he's frying the crown jewels there. I think we're going to have to get a substitute in. Yep, the, the the crown jewels are being fried, so we're going to have another Rupert coming in here. Let's see, Rupert, oh, can he get it up? Oh, oh no, oh dear no. And uh, Jock once again. Jock stands up to the hockey. Jock's on the hockey, and uh, can he? Can he get the hilt? Can he get the kilt sky high? Let again to the heights of the Himalayas. Oh, he's got it up pretty high, but oh no! Oh, the house of cards came tumbling down there. So there we go. We have a tie. It's England two, Scotland two. In our, uh, it's going to be inaugural from now on. Our kilt lifting competition. So it's time for historical tender, and we have uh, two great contestants, a real Scottish hero and a uh, English hero today. But we're kicking off first with our uh, Scottish hero, uh, William Wallace. We have 10 facts to decide whether to swipe right or uh, left on this fella. Um, so William Wallace was the most prominent leader during the War of Scottish Independence. He led Scotland to a famous victory at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which made the Scots believe they could challenge the mighty English. Um, we didn't know very much about his origins or his early life, uh, but he was the youngest son of a Scottish landowner, probably named Alan Wallace. His father was killed by English troops. Um, it was uh, at the Battle of Dunbar in 1296. Uh, this was a p 
period when his father was killed in a skirmish with the English troops at Luden Hill. Uh, Wallace rebelled against King Edward I by killing the High Sheriff at Lanark. Uh, and then uh, William Wallace led Scotland to a famous victory, one of the most famous, uh, captured in Braveheart uh, at Stirling Bridge. Uh, William Wallace was appointed guardian of Scotland in late 1297 and he was, uh, you can see the Wallace sword that uh, was used by him in the battles of Stirling and Falkirk on display in Scotland. And then he resigned as guardian of Scotland after his defeat at the Battle of Falkirk by King Edward himself, defeated him. And Wallace was handed over to the English by John Lemaitre, uh in 1305, a Scottish knight who had his loyalty to Edward, handed over William Wallace, uh, and uh, he was tried for treason. And then uh, Wallace was executed. He was uh, dragged naked through London at the heels of a horse, and he had a very gruesome uh, execution. He was hanged and released when he was alive, and then he was uh, disemboweled. So a very pleasant uh, end to uh, William Wallace's life. And on the English side, historical tinder, uh, we have Lord Admiral Nelson. Uh, so here are a few facts on Nelson. So was he a lover of wildlife? Nelson served under Commodore Phipps during his expedition in the North Pole. The legend goes that Nelson and one of his shipmates bunked off duty and stalked a polar bear over the ice. After having been surprised by the beast, Nelson's weapon misfired, forcing him to fend the creature off with the butt of his rifle. Uh, and he was able to get away, leading to the creation of the now famous painting of this moment, immortalizing the myth. He had very inauspicious beginnings. Nelson was a middle child of 11 siblings, uh, almost certain to receive little or no inheritance from his father. He joined the Navy at the tender age of 12. His family was somewhat bemused by the idea. On hearing the news of his young nephew, Horatio was uh, to join the sea. Morris Suckling, N Nelson's uncle, said, What has poor Horatio done who is so weak and uh, sent, sent to rough it out at sea? Um, and then, apparently, he was sick as a sea dog for most of his life. In spite of the fact that he joined the Navy at 12, he received his first uh, command at the age of 20 and became Admiral at the age of 39. Nelson suffered from seasickness for the entirety of his, uh, of his career. Nelson famously once wrote that he was uh, ill every time it blew hard and nothing uh, but his enthusiastic love for his profession kept him one hour at sea. It could be argued Nelson's suffering showed his patriotism and sacrifices willing that he was made for his country. And then turning a blind eye, Nelson's unorthodox naval tactics helped him to the victory of Trafalgar, and uh, it wasn't the only time he broke the rules. During the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801, Nelson was ordered to retreat by the cautious Admiral Supide Parker through the use of system of signal flags. The story goes that, lifting his telescope to his blind eye, I have a right to be blind sometimes. I really do not see that signal. And then, uh, following his death at the Battle of Trafalgar, it was feared that Nelson's body would succumb to the rot of the voyage back to England. In the end, he was preserved in a brandy cask. What a way to go, hey? I wonder if he just straw. The uh, cask was lashed to the mast of the victory and was guarded by a marine. There's another story that at the time of the victory reached Gibraltar, the level of alcohol had gone down uh, and the body was soaking up all the drink, or the marine uh, making a quick penny by offering a drink to the crew. This is where the nickname Nelson's Blood comes from, from the famous saying that tapping the admiral related to tapping of the barrel. Uh, there's all no proof, obviously, that this happened, but Nelson's body was then transferred uh, into a spirit for the journey back to England. By the time the body reached Greenwich, his face 
uh, had been covered as it lay in state due to the unrecognized swelling of the face in the brandy. So I said on the podcast before, one of my favorite sites uh, or uh, little uh, places to go on Twitter is Very British Problems. And it's been steaming hot in the UK, as it has in Colorado here. Uh, I think it's probably been even hotter here in Colorado because I did decide to uh, make a full English breakfast on the pavement, as I did last year around this time. So um, something I saw on Very British Problems, people obviously getting very upset about the hot weather. Starting to feel a little tired from waking up in the 3am blazing hot sunlight in Britain. One sunny day. Wow, this is a surprise. Everybody's outside. Let's barbecue everything. Two sunny days. This is the life. I love shorts. Let's sunbathe in the park or run for a sprinkler. Three sunny days. Please make it stop. So we still have uh, trompe or trombone, even though uh, it's a England versus Scotland special today. Um, but, you know, who's going to have the triumphant trombone uh, or, the, uh, or probably uh, the uh, raspy old Trump at the end? That's probably for the loser, maybe. Uh, but the mass question splits internet as nobody can agree on the correct answer. Uh, Twitter can't agree on the answer. Eight divided by two, open bracket, two plus two, close bracket. And it's all down to if you went to a British American school. Some of the responses, uh, they're basically split in two, uh, trying to solve the math problem on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, PJM Doll uh, asks, Umfi solve this alongside the uh, problem of eight divided by two, open bracket, two plus two, close bracket, equals. They added, I could do parentheses, multiplication, then division. So let's see, I believe it's one. So I see apparently division comes first. This is why I didn't do very well in maths. Uh, but nobody seems to agree on the answer with half of Twitter saying one is correct, but the other's pointing out it's indeed 16. This is a real conundrum for parents because they haven't got a chance of answering this if they left school within the last five years. You might as well be taking Mandarin. <laughs> And a despondent traddy has been filmed trucking into his KFC meal uh, and a can of Carlsberg after crashing his car into a drive through uh, at the restaurant. The man kneeled at the side of the road to tuck into his fried chicken and chips as he watched his emergency services clean up the debris from the smash. He was leaving the uh, fast food restaurant at Panaman and Adelaide East on 3pm on Monday uh, when he lost control of uh, his car and slammed into a pole. Crews worked at the scene to remove the line strewn across the road and the man tucked into his food meters from the carnage that he had indeed caused. It seems like in his mind, uh, the accident was uh, middle finger licking good after the uh, pothole pie. and testicle-eating fish with human-like teeth found in European waters for the first time. Henrik Karl from Denmark's Natural History Museum warns that while the uh, paku isn't normally dangerous to humans, there have been incidents where some men have had their testicles bitten off. The fish notorious for eating testicles of unwary male swimmers has been found in European waters for the first time. The paku, a type of piranha fish noted for its uh, human-like teeth, is usually found in the Amazon. However, reports local news site Gentside, what an apt name, uh, one of the uh, eight-inch fish known as the ball cutter was caught by fisherman Inar Lindgren in an eel trap located at the south coast of Sweden. I mean, maybe the fish should be renamed the bobbit fish 
after Lorena Bobbitt. Uh, battered Bobbitt and chips uh, would be a salty dish with a little bit of bite to it. So, another little English-Scottish competition here. Let's introduce the Irish as well. What's the difference between English, Irish and Scottish breakfast tea? Let's say you're out to breakfast and you made the decision to give up coffee, so you decided to order some black tea for your caffeine fix. So you place your order and the server asks, well, what kind exactly? And that's when you notice there's a full list under black tea. Uh, you've got Earl Grey, a very different fragrance from the other black teas, but what's the difference between the English, Irish and Scottish breakfast teas? So next time when the server is tapping a pencil and a notepad waiting for you, uh, you can make an informed decision. Pinky out. The first important thing to keep in mind is that all three breakfast teas, English, Irish, Scottish, and let's add a fourth Earl Grey, are black tea blends. Your basic black tea is typically made from leaves of different varieties of shrub called Camellia sinensis. Usually the uh, Chinese variety plant and the uh, Assam plant. The exact blend depends entirely on the tea maker. There's never been a standard recipe put in place for what constitutes an English breakfast tea blend compared to an Irish breakfast tea or Scottish. That said, there's usually agreed on some open attributes for each kind of tea. So English breakfast tea was originally a black tea from China uh, called Kongal. However, China imposed an embargo on Kongal during the Opium Wars to deal with England's uh, British East India Tea Company. Uh, beginning producing tea in Assam, India, which meant there was a point at which uh, people began combining the Congo and the Assam teas, so a blend. A few hundred years later, England began importing tea from Sri Lanka, Ceylon, and uh, threw it into the mix. Nowadays, English breakfast tea is a blend of tea from Assam, Ceylon, and even Kenya. It's typically described as a full-bodied, uh, a full-bodied tea uh, that's meant to go well with milk and sugar. Of course, pairing well with a full English breakfast. Of course, of course. Irish breakfast tea is known for a strong Assam component, likely due to the tea trends as well, uh, which tends to add a little malt flavour to the tea. It's also a more robust type of tea as well. And Scottish breakfast tea is thought to be stronger. While the blend is similar to Irish and English breakfast tea, Scottish breakfast tea was likely blended specifically to overcome Scotland's soft water. Don't make, the, don't make the water so soft, laddie. Oh, that's absolutely disgusting, that's. Anyway, so you don't want to call the uh, Scots Southern Softies, but their water may be, so their tea has to be stronger. Hopefully that won't keep you up at night. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. It's been lovely having you here. It's been a special sort of Euro 96 flavor to uh, it, reminiscing of that uh, great match uh, in 1996. And uh, hopefully today's will live up to the same uh, expectation. I'm sure there'll be uh, many people uh, painting, uh, you know, the white St. Andrew's cross and maybe uh, maybe completely uh, covering themselves in uh, blue polish as well. Uh, and there'll be a lot of white uh, white bellies uh, sticking out and uh, with the red St. George's cross over it as well. There'll be lots of sunburn. There'll be lots of boozing and drinking. I think it's going to be a wonderful time. And uh, whichever side you're on, I'm sure it's going to uh, be a rip-roaring afternoon. 
So the audio versions across all the platforms, as I always say, we have a little Euro 96 musical edition. Some of the songs uh, coming, you know, from 96, some very football orientated, uh, Dignity, Deacon Blue, World in Motion, uh, obviously the uh, little bit of a John Barnes rap going on there. Uh, we have some Cooler Shaker. We have some Long Pigs. Uh, we have some Fratellis. You can boogie. Uh, good enough dodgy. I mean, it's it will be a very it'll be a very nostalgic mix for you if you were uh, maybe uh, at a pub in 1996, uh, either uh, celebrating or possibly drowning your sorrows. So we have a little bit of an Australian flavour here, funnily enough, uh, for this uh, poem, a friendly game of football. We were challenged by the dingoes, they the pride of squatters gap, to a friendly game of football on the flat of Devil's Trap. And we went along on horses, sworn to the triumph of the game, for the honour of Gyps diggings and the glory of the same. And we took the challenge with us, it was beautiful to see, with its lovely curly letters at its pretty fliggery. It was very gently worded and it made us all feel good for it breathed the sweetest sentiments of peace and brotherhood. We had Chang and Trucker Hogan and the man who licked the plug, also Hegarty and Houlihan and Peter Scott the pug. And we wore our knuckle dusters and we took a keg on tap to our friendly game of football with the dingoes at the gap. It's going to be a roaster today. Uh, I think uh, certainly in the uh, around the Colorado area here, but also I believe in the UK, it may be a hot one again. So make sure you have those uh, wetted, knotted handkerchiefs on the head if you're watching the game. And, uh, you know, drink a little bit of aqua between uh, all of the beer. I might have a celebratory or even a commiseratory uh, gin and tonic or maybe try the new uh, Bailey's Pina Colada for a little bit of sweet coconutiness. Uh, anyway, Chappy out. Cheerio for now. Talk to you again tomorrow.